Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host. And could it be? Could football really be coming home? It's England versus Italy. And in this podcast, we're really going to jump on that bandwagon. We're talking England versus Italy, ancient style, kind of. We're talking all about the two expeditions to Britain by the Roman general Julius Caesar. Caesar's invasions of Britain in 55 and 54 BC. In this podcast, we're going to be going into incredible detail. We're going into the nitty gritty detail of these two expeditions. And joining me to talk all about this is Dr. Simon Elliott, an ancient regular, an ancient legend. Simon is a fantastic speaker. It was great to get him on the podcast at such short notice. And without further ado, here's Simon. Simon, he's back. Great to have you back on the podcast. Always absolute pleasure to be on the podcast with all my friends at History Hit, including you, Tristan, especially on such a fantastic day. It is such a fantastic day. It's coming home. England versus Italy, ancient style. We're talking about Julius Caesar's invasions of Britain because, Simon, this does really feel like a watershed moment in the history of Britain. It's worth remembering, actually, Tristan, that when you're looking at the Caesarian invasions of Britain, which were in 55 and 54 BC, it's definitely a game of two halves because in the first instance, you've got the 55 BC sort of invasion, which is the first half, and then the second invasion is 54 BC, the second half. In an actual fact, for the Roman conquest of Britain, of course, it goes to extra time because you've got the Claudian invasion in AD 43, which in actual fact goes to a penalty shootout on the River Medway, which the Italians, the Romans, eventually sort of win, ultimately. But certainly for the Caesarian invasion, so the first half, in the second half, the victors were the British because Caesar came and saw but didn't conquer. I love that analogy. That was brilliant, Simon. You've been thinking about that for some time, haven't you, with the penalty shootouts and everything? I woke up at 5.30 this morning and that immediately popped into my head. (laughs) (laughs) So let's look at the background first of all. Caesar's campaigning up to 55 BC in and around Gaul. Simon, what's he accomplished so far? What's the story so far? Well, Julius Caesar, I think, was the greatest warlord of the later Roman Republic. So if you imagine you've got the situation where the great seven-time consul and warrior, consul and general Marius, completely reforms the Roman military in the middle of the Cimbrian Wars at the end of the 2nd century BC. He creates Roman legions of the kind which Caesar then uses later in his campaigns, including in Britain. And in so doing, he actually creates this unique kind of military entity 
which enables the military and political leaders of the later Roman Republic to operate effectively as independent warlords. So let's break it down to start with and look at the legions that Marius created and which Caesar used. So Marius changed completely the nature of the Roman military and the elite soldiers, the legionaries in the legions. He created these legions, which were 6,000 men strong. Every man within the legion was equipped in exactly the same way. So he had the classic Lorica Hamata chain mail hobok. He had the scutum shield. He had his pilum, heavy lead weighted throwing javelins, his gladius hispaniensis sword, terrible, terrible psychological weapon, the gladius we can talk about later maybe, pugio dagger, etc. And they're all equipped in the same way. But within those legionaries, you also then had of the 6,000, about 1,800 of them were specialists as well. And so they were specialists at doing things like carpentry or metalworking or fletching arrows or making tiles, every single thing that a legion needed to do to be in the field. So therefore, suddenly you have this military entity, the legion, which is completely independent. It's not reliant on a supply chain or anything. It can do whatever it wants. It doesn't have to take siege equipment with it, it can actually make its own siege equipment when it needs it. So therefore, this suddenly becomes a very independent military formation, which can then be bolted together like Lego bricks by any military leader who wants them. And this is exactly what Caesar does. So you go through a range of great sort of late Republican Roman warlords, including Marius, including Sulla, and you end up with this sort of group of major military and political leaders in Rome who are vying for power, sort of in the 60s and 50s BC. Julius Caesar, Pompey, Crassus, etc. They're all wanting to be the big man of Rome, but Caesar is the guy who eventually alights on a really incredible means of doing it, and that's military conquest. The classic means of a political leader cementing his fortunes, especially in the pre-modern age, in fact, even in the modern age. So Caesar has an opportunity when he gets made the proconsul of Gaul, which at that time was effectively the Mediterranean coast of modern France, to conquer the whole of Gaul. And this is how he chooses to make his name. So you have the Gallic Wars, which he writes about. It's worth remembering here that Caesar was also the greatest PR man of the ancient world, because nearly everything we know about him, he wrote. Okay, And as a PR man myself, I can actually look at exactly what he's doing and think this man clearly knows how to determine his own legacy. And so every year that he's campaigning in Gaul, from 58 to 52 BC, not only is he creating new legions to help him do the conquest of Gaul, he's also writing back to the Roman public, to the Senate in Rome, to other military leaders, saying what he'd done. So therefore, his legacy is in print as well as physically there, geographically on the landscape of what is now modern France. And in the middle of this incredible campaign to conquer the whole of Gaul, which, by the way, isn't easy. And he's also not just fighting the Gauls, he's fighting the Germans as well. He decides to do something that's crazy. So more Game of Thrones than Game of Thrones, more Tolkien than Tolkien. He decides to invade Britain. What possessed the man to choose to invade Britain, this terrifying island across Oceanus, which the Romans were scared of in its own right, the Northern Seas, it's not the benign, as the Romans would have seen it, Mare Nostrum in the Mediterranean. This is terrifying Oceanus, the North Sea, the English Channel, the Atlantic approaches. And he decides to invade Britain. What a crazy thing to do. And so, Simon, how much did the Romans know of Britain before Caesar arrives there with his expedition? Again, it's worth breaking this down, actually, because the real answer, to cut to the chase, and then I'll go into detail for you, is not much. So Britain was known in the Mediterranean through some early reference works. So the earliest one appears in the 6th century BC, and it's called the Massiliate Periplus, which is a merchant's handbook, which is now lost, but is referenced in a number of later poems, including an important one called the Aura Maritime Poem, which dates to the late 4th century AD Roman poet Avienus. So this takes us all the way back to the 6th century BC. And in this poem, the reference taken from the original 6th century BC work 
gives a name to the inhabitants of the islands of Britain for the first time. And it calls the Britons on the main island of Britain, the Albiones, and the inhabitants on the second main island of the British Isles, which is modern Ireland, calls them the Scots-Irish, calls them the Iverni. So you have the Albiones and the Iverni. And then later we have Herodotus being the next to reference the islands, which he describes as the Cassidaderas in his histories. Now, this is often associated with Britain, given it references the Tin Islands. And of course, what we do know is that in the prehistoric period, so in the period in British history before we have writing, there is widespread contact, in actual fact, from the continent with Britain through long-range trading networks, and these include the export of tin to the continent, so principally to France and to Spain. More clarity then comes with the 4th century BC Greek geographer Pythias, who's from Marseille. Now, his definitive work is also lost to us, but key sections were later plagiarised heavily, sometimes word for word by the likes of Strabo, Pliny the Elder and Diodorus. And Pythias was the first person to record a circumnavigation of Britain during his maritime explorations of the northwestern Europe. And he then gives his own name to the natives of Britain, having visited Britain, and he calls them the Pretani, which is where the name Britain comes from in actual fact, and it means the painted people. And then we come more towards the period of Caesar, and we have Strabo and Pliny, etc., who make extensive use of Pythias in their works, and they give much more detail about the nature of Britain. And then we have Caesar himself, of course, also talking about Britain. And through all of these, we get a picture of a fairly stable network of tribal territories. So in the area that we're going to talk about, we have the Cantiaki in modern Kent. We have the Atrabates in the Thames Valley. We have the Trinovantes in the sort of region of modern southern Essex. And then the Catavallone in the larger region to the north of London. And Caesar indicates himself the kinds of exports in his time that are coming to the Mediterranean world from Britain, which includes interesting things which you would expect, like agricultural produce and woolen goods, Britain's famous in the Roman world later for woolen goods, but also massive hunting dogs. And very interestingly, and I think as a military historian, this is very interesting, slaves. Now, this indicates if slaves are being exported, that there is friction between the British tribes. So the slaves are coming from conflict. Let's hypothesise between, say, the Atrobates and the Catavallonians and so on. So by Caesar's time, a bit is known, but not much. And it is clearly given every time the Romans have a chance of referencing an invasion of Britain, whether it's Caesar 1-2, whether it's Claudius AD 43, whether it's later Constantius Chlorus, they reference it being a really terrifying prospect. So clearly the Romans were scared of the place. So a bit is known, but not much. And you can imagine British traders going through the camp of Caesar or going through Gaul at this time, crossing the channel, crossing this stretch of water. But at this time in 55 BC, Caesar, he's in Gaul, he's looking across to Britain. I mean, Simon, what is the purpose of his first expedition to Britain. Do you think he's going there for conquest or for some other reason, first of all? Number of reasons, Tristan. So firstly, let's contextualise it in terms of what's happening in his conquest of Gaul. This isn't easy. Most of his later campaigns in the conquest of Gaul aren't actually conquering new territory. They're dealing with the revolts. And of course, when he finally defeats Vercingetorix at the Great Siege of Elysia in 52 BC, he's dealing with the Great Gallic Revolt. So from the sort of mid-50s, Caesar more or less is not dealing with new conquests. He's dealing with revolts within Gaul. And you can imagine the tribal elites from the various Gallic nations he's previously defeated, like, for example, the Bel the Helvetia, etc. You can imagine their tribal leaders actually fleeing to territories where they're going to be safe and where are they going to be safe? They're probably going to go to their late Iron Age neighbours 
who have the same Latine culture that they do, and that's in Britain. So you can imagine, firstly, in Britain, there's a lot of refugees from the Roman conquest of Gaul, which is a very moving feast in the mid-1950s, and they're always causing trouble. You can imagine if you've got sort of a very stable tribal structure in modern Kent with the Cantiaki, all the time the refugees there are going to be whispering in the ear of the tribal leaders, come on, let's get rid of these Romans. You know you're next, you're going to be next, you're next for the chop. So therefore there's interference coming from Britain back into Caesar in his already problematic conquest of Gaul. Secondly, this is Julius Caesar. This is a man with an enormous sense of personal destiny. This is a man who, at the age of 33, standing next to a statue of Alexander the Great, the great Alexander the Great in Cadiz, weeps because he realises that at the age of 33, he's got nowhere near the achievements of Alexander the Great, and he thinks he's a failure. So this is a man with an enormous sense of self-destiny. He really, I believe, thinks he's going to be the greatest Roman. And if you're the greatest Roman, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to look around to find what's going to really make your name. And if you can do the Game of Thrones, Hail Mary, and try and invade Britain, that's what you're going to do. So therefore, there's also this political imperative based on Caesar's sense of self-destiny. And also, as I originally mentioned, the Romans are aware that there are economic reasons for engaging with Britain more aggressively as well. We know that the exports I've detailed as an example. So those three really all come into play. And then there's opportunity as well, because he finds himself in 55 BC campaigning in northwestern Gaul, where, interestingly, he has been previously dealing with a revolt of the local tribes there, etc. And he's probably getting word at the time that, you know, you've got to be careful, Caesar, because the land you're conquering here in northwestern Gaul, they're not going to be secure if you don't deal with Britain as well. So three key things, really. I mean, of course, Simon, and you mentioned there northwestern Gaul and Brittany. Brittany's renowned for its close connections with Britain in antiquity too. So it seems very interesting that you highlight that at the end of that point there. Let's look at preparation for this first expedition now, because how does Caesar go about gathering intelligence for this expedition? Right, it's a fantastic question. Caesar's preparations for all of his military campaigns, whether it's his early campaigns in Spain, whether it's in his campaigns in the Gallic Conquest, and then his later campaigns at any phase of the civil wars, whether it's in Macedonia and Greece, whether it's in Egypt, whether it's in North Africa, or whether it's in again towards the end of his life in Spain, his preparations are immaculate. I mean, I've just written a book actually comparing Alexander the Great and Caesar, looking at their campaigning styles, and Caesar is amazingly immaculate in his preparations, his logistics, planning and everything, except for one invasion. (laughs) The 55 BC invasion of Britain is by a long way his worst military campaign, because the way it appears to us through the literary sources that we have and through the archaeology, it almost appears as though he's done no planning whatsoever. He's got his two legions ready to do the invasion. It's almost like a last minute thing, isn't it? towards the end of the campaigning season, which is dangerous in itself because you're moving into the rougher waters in the sort of autumn and towards the winter. Nobody sails in the winter. He's got his two legions, the 7th, which is a veteran legion, then his own elite 10th legion, which is probably the finest fighting force in the entire world, actually. It's a big statement to make, acknowledging the rest of the world, not just the Mediterranean, but I would argue that at this time, the 10th Legion is probably the elite fighting force in the whole world, okay? So he's got his men there. He gets his vessels together. He gathers 80 transports, modifies 18 additional vessels to carry horses. Most of the vessels are war galleys, in actual fact, which he brings from the Mediterranean. So these are things which have been fighting the civil wars there. So not that suited to campaigning at sea in northwest European waters. And then he does a couple of things. He sends a legate over to scout 
the southeast coast of Britain. And by the way, let's just touch on one very quick point. Where did Caesar campaign? I'm a firm believer when he came to Britain, it was on the south eastern coast of Britain, almost certainly eastern Kent in actual fact, which we can break down later. So you've got Gaius Volacenus, who's his legate, a seasoned general from his campaigns in Gaul, and he sticks him in a trireme, so three banks of oars, war galley, ram on the front, big sail, four sail, castle on the back, three banks of oars, so a few marines, and they come over the English Channel, probably take probably about 12 hours taking their time, and they start scouting the what I believe is the east coast of Kent. And they sail up and down in this one trireme with this one general. And this legate, who's an experienced general, clearly hasn't been involved in an amphibious assault before. Let's remember an amphibious assault is the most dangerous kind of military operation, and he decides the best place to land is beneath the White Cliffs of Dover which to my mind is mental, because you can imagine where are you going to defend if you're the native Britons? You're going to stand on top of the White Cliffs of Dover, chucking boulders, rocks, javelins, firing bows and arrows and everything. Basically, it's like Omaha Beach in D-Day, right? But if the Romans had landed there, then the ending wouldn't have been beneficial to the Romans at all. But he goes back and tells Caesar that's where we should land, so Caesar actually takes his word for it. Caesar then sends a military and political leader from Gaul who has very, very close links in Britain, to announce his arrival, but this individual lands, and then he's promptly arrested by the Britons. So that's completely fails as well. Nevertheless, Caesar decides to go ahead, sticks his men in the ships, then something goes wrong. So the thing that goes wrong is that he's separated out his mounted component, his cavalry, and his legionaries. And it's important to remember here, this is before the Roman Empire. So you don't have an indigenous cavalry component within the Roman military establishment. For the cavalry, what Caesar's doing is he's hiring Gallic and German cavalrymen, who are, by the way, very good, don't get me wrong, quite brutal headhunters. So they will do the job if they could arrive, but they don't, because the 18 vessels modified to carry the cavalry horses with the cavalrymen slightly further away from Caesar's departure point, which is probably around modern Boulogne, Mr. Tide, they're not available for the invasion. So Caesar begins his invasion with only the foot component, which means, and he's a veteran general by this time, so he knows this, that when he starts campaigning, if he successfully lands, that he has no means of scouting ahead of his legionary spearheads. And if he is militarily successful, he has no means of exploiting any breakthroughs. He's almost blind. But let's keep on this then, Simon. Caesar, he crosses the channel with this part of his army. He gets the point which Volusinus suggests that he land for this amphibious assault. But almost immediately, if not immediately, the plan starts falling apart. Which is interesting, again, because you see something here. Caesar, to this point, has failed in his military operation because he's failed in his planning, he's failed in his logistics. But you do then see the veteran military leader coming to the fore. So the vessels arrive, I argue, off the White Cliffs of Dover. And guess what? The Britons are there. We can imagine, can't we, the White Cliffs of Dover, like a scene from the end of Quadrophenia, with the chariots riding up and down. So instead of Phil Daniels on his moped, you've got the native Britons on their sort of like two-horse or two-pony chariots, the leaders riding up and down the White Cliffs, shouting insults at the Romans, the massed warriors of the native British army. By the way, it's worth reflecting what the nature was of the native British army. You have a chariot riding elite and then you have part-time soldiers who are farmers who are called in an almost feudal system to the standard whenever there's an engagement. And this is what's happened here. These troops are usually armed with a shield and a spear, and if they're lucky, a dagger 
or a small axe or a sword. So they're not a match one for one, at least in a symmetrical engagement for the Roman legions by a long way, I would argue. But they are here because they're on top of the White Cliffs of Dover. So Caesar knows this. He realises that he's made a mistake. So therefore, he has a sort of at-sea conference with his generals. And bear in mind, by the way, that they set off on this journey at midnight the previous morning. And so we're now around lunchtime the following day. And Caesar's invasion fleet is now off the White Cliffs of Dover. All these galleys, etc., all full of men, all probably not feeling particularly well or healthy, having spent sort of like the past so many hours crossing the English Channel. We've got no idea what the sea conditions were, but they wouldn't have been particularly good, probably. So Caesar decides, actually, we're not going to land here. This is too dangerous. So what we're going to do is we're going to go up the coast. So he starts travelling up the coast with his fleet, probably with the galleys now being rowed, and waits until he can find a beach where he can put his troops ashore. And I think the beach which he looks towards is that very broad expanse, a very gentle, accessible beach on the East Kent coast, between sort of Deal, Walmer, Sandwich, that kind of thing, all the way up into the Wonsome Channel, which separated out physically at that time the island of Thanet from the mainland of Britain. So here, Caesar sees that he can land. But hey, guess what? <laughs> the Britons aren't stupid. <laughs> they can see all these galleys off the coast. They've got all the refugees from Gaul whispering in their ear. You know what's going to happen to you, don't you? You know, you've got to get rid of them because if they get ashore, you're in trouble. So they follow. So you can imagine this almost comical race to get to an invasion beach. So, so seas were at sea, the, the roads rowing, rowing, rowing. The Britons in their chariots and any light cavalry and then the running men. Who's going to get to a beach first? So Caesar gets to a beach first, but just at the point when he's going to land his troops, the Britons arrive as well. So it does turn into that most dangerous of military operation, an amphibious assault against the defended shore. And here it's quite a close run thing. So we have this situation. The legionaries are now ready in the galleys to come ashore. These aren't perfect ships, remember, to unload troops onto the shore. These are war galleys. And also the literal coast here is fairly shallow as well. So the galleys are actually struggling. And it looks as though, from what Caesar says himself, that originally his legionaries, including for the 10th Legion, refuse to get out of the galleys. They can see the Britons massed on the shore. They've been at sea. They're probably feeling seasick. This is terrifying Britannia. Now, remember, of course, we're dealing with a primary source here in Caesar himself, who's clearly using poetic license. But nevertheless, what he's trying to tell us, if we can break it down, is that this wasn't easy. And the battle proves not to be easy. So it takes the Aquilifer, so the standard bearer with the eagle standard of the 10th Legion. This is almost a religious item within the Legion, the Aquilifer eagle standard. To jump in the shallows, Caesar puts words in his mouth that the Aquilifer jumps in the shallows with the Britons sort of swarming towards him. And he shouts out, Leap, fellow soldiers, unless you wish to betray your eagle to the enemy. I, for my part, will perform my duty to the Republic and to my general. And I'll tell you what, that put hairs on the back of my head up, actually, as well. It's an amazing sort of quote to put in the mouth of this Aquilifer. And it works. So the legionaries now come ashore. And they fight a very close-run battle where what the Britons are doing is they're trying to sort of isolate pockets of Romans as, as they come ashore and kill them before weight of numbers tells. But the Roman training comes to the fore here. I liken this, actually, using the D-Day analogy again, to the parachute drops around D-Day, where you're getting pockets of paratroopers dropped in all sorts of odd places, but coming together in bespoke units, even if they're not in the same division, etc., just to try and do the job. And this is what happens here. So any legionary who comes ashore who can't find his own vexilla standard or signifer standard 
or see the eagle for the two legions landing, goes towards the nearest standard and coalesces into fighting forces, and eventually Caesar succeeds. But of course, what's not here, Tristan? There's no cavalry. So it proves to be a very short-lived episode in actual fact, and it's actually, I would argue, probably a failure in that Caesar comes ashore and can't do any proper campaigning, builds his marching camp, which the Romans do at the end of every day, is marching enemy territory. You have a couple of engagements locally with the Britons, but Caesar again suffers here, because then bad weather destroys many of his galleys and then he's forced to try and do lots of repairs and ultimately decides it's not worth the effort. He's been ashore, he can put the tick in the box, the PR exercise is done, writes back to Rome saying, I've done this amazing thing, and eventually you have the Romans returning to Gaul. So that's a sort of an ignominious end, really, to the 55 BC incursion. The key thing here is, with no cavalry, even though he's got 12,000 legionaries, these elite warriors were far better one-on-one -on -one than the Britons. Without the cavalry they've got no means really of campaigning properly because they're going to be too vulnerable. Simon, that was a great overview there. Just before we keep going on, to really hammer home on this point, considering Caesar's objectives and the fact that he does leave Britain late in the campaign, I know he's made all of these mistakes, but in your opinion, can we say that if we're looking at Caesar's objectives, was his first expedition making this mark, was it a success or was it a failure? Right, it's a very difficult question to answer, right? So I'm going to answer it as a PR man in two ways. <laughs> so politically, it was a success because he'd done it, right? Militarily, it was a failure because no matter how much he dresses things up and how much the later sources, who largely like to big Caesar up in actual fact, so it's worth remembering that to the Romans of the empire, the two greatest Romans were Augustus, the first emperor, and then Julius Caesar. But no matter how much anybody dresses it up militarily, it's got to be a failure, hasn't it? I'll use another Second World War analogy, which will hopefully provoke people to think and give you a bit of debate. There's almost a feeling like it's like Dieppe, isn't there? Because you've done the job, you've got ashore, but you've not really got off the beach. And you've also wound up the locals as well. Look at it from the British perspective. They may claim that they won the first half, but in actual fact, they've now come up face to face with Roman legionaries and they know that one for one their warriors, even their elite warriors, are not going to be as good, which is what plays out later in the second invasion in 54 and then in the Claudian invasion as well, unless the Britons make use of terrain, etc. And also, they've had Romans ashore and they can be sure as hell that the Romans having been there once are going to come back. So from the Britain's perspective, it's a mixed bag, you know, short-term gain, long-term, question mark. Welcome to Gone Medieval, the podcast that will dust off and polish up some of the medieval period's most fascinating characters and stories. So this is a really kind of funny way where, you know, medieval people differ from us immensely because as far as they are concerned, sexual desire and interest in sex is a feminine trait. It's a very difficult one, isn't it? I mean, I think that Henry I did not probably intend to be buried under a school. And he is one of the great kings of medieval history. We found that about 18% of our sample had evidence of bunions. So we think this change over time is directly related to the type of footwear that people were wearing. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. And on Gone Medieval, we'll tell you just why the so-called Dark Ages really weren't that dark after all. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. 
This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Simon, you predicted my line exactly halfway. It's half time, 1 0 Britain. But 54 BC, Caesar, he decides to have another go. This is a completely different scale of operation. So, Caesar, being a brilliant general, has learned from his mistakes. And for him, the big man, although he's claimed back in Rome that, you know, he's done the amazing thing in Britain, he knows really that he's got to do better. So, it's unfinished business. And you'll probably find that having been ashore in Britain, he's proved to certainly his legionaries that it's not such a terrifying place after all. It's just the same as the continent, certainly in terms of the culture in Kent. So he decides to come back. And again, this is set in terms of campaigning in the wider Gallic Wars. So this is not a bespoke campaign that only takes place in 54 and nothing else. It's one of a number that take place in 54, whereas campaigning against Germans and a campaign against the sort of northwestern Gauls again. But this time, having learned his mistake, he actually brings together five legions. So five legions, that's 30,000 men. So to contextualise, and also 2,000 Allied cavalry. So let's say 32,000 men. Contextualise that, shall we? For Roman campaigning forces in Britain, in terms of scale and size, you've got Septimius Severus trying to conquer Scotland at the beginning of the 3rd century AD with over 50,000 men, which is the largest campaigning force ever on British soil. You've got the later AD 43 invasion with Aulus Plautius on behalf of Claudius with four legions and with an equivalent number of by then auxiliaries. That's 40,000 men, so that's 50 and then 40. And then you've got Caesar, 54 BC, with 32,000 men. And then finally, you've got Agricola trying to conquer the far north at the end of the first century AD with 30,000 men. So on that scale, this is the third largest campaigning force the Romans ever deployed in Britain. It's a big deal. But also, he's learnt 
from the mistakes with the transports as well. So this time he uses the skilled carpenters and shipwrights in northwestern Gaul to build 600 specially designed ships which are designed to disembark troops easily on the British coast. He then also charters 200 local transports, gathers 80 ships from the previous year's invasion and then 28 war galleys. So this is a much bigger land force and a much bigger naval force such that the Britons don't try and oppose the landing. So Caesar's got his force, transports them over to Britain, I think using the same landing beaches again. And this is a much more classic kind of military campaign in actual fact, where although he didn't conquer, he can probably claim a proper victory. So he comes over, he lands, there's no immediate opposition, forms his legions into legionary spearheads. I think this campaign takes place on the north side of the North Downs, which is broadly the line of later Watling Street, the Rome sort of main road, in, trunk road in Rome of Britain, principally because he's got a huge fleet and he can use it because he's on the coast. And I think then the line of advance is on this line of later Watling Street, where there are two or three minor engagements where the Britons do try and stop the Romans. And by this time, most of the tribes in the southeast have gathered to oppose the Romans, although they're trying to avoid at least initially a set-piece battle. Led by Cassivellaunus, who Caesar names, who is probably the tribal leader of the Cassivellauni. So this is the big tribal area to the north of London. And Caesar fights two or three engagements. One or two are close from things, but broadly he's successful. It's a much more traditional Roman military operation. He's got cavalry now landed. They're operating on the flanks, covering the rear. He has to deal with Bad weather again, damaging his transports, deploying troops back to fix them, but then continuing the campaign. And then he forces the crossing of the River Thames, which he names, which I think is the later line used by Plautius in the AD 43 invasion from the Hu Peninsula across to where modern Tilbury is. Then Caesar forces his way through in a military campaign through to the heartlands of the Catavalloni, I think, and finally brings the Britons to some kind of peace agreement because they know they're going to lose. In fact, interestingly, in the last engagements, Catavalloni gets rid of all his foot troops and only tries to stop Caesar using his chariots in hit-and-run tactics. So clearly they've learned not to take on the Romans. And there's an interesting debate about where the area where the Catavalloni capital would have been. So it's described as a heavily fortified oppida. It's effectively like a hill fort around sort of a settlement. So it's a defended settlement, a properly defended settlement, which features substantial surrounding ditches, earthen banks, palisades, and defended gateways. The location's long been contested, but candidate sites include places like Gatesbury, Redbourne, Baldock, Ravensburg Castle, and Warbrick Camp, all in the region of places like modern Hertfordshire and things like that. But the most likely location is actually in Hertfordshire, and that's Wheathampstead in Lee Valley, because here the late Iron Age defences were so impressive that some remain visible today, particularly one called the Devil's Dyke, which is 30 metres wide and 12 metres deep. So that's probably where Caesar brings the native Britons to heel. Now, this is important in terms of the wider context of what's happening and later happens in terms of the Roman relations with the native Britons, because this now puts Britain on the Roman map. So as part of the peace agreement, the Britons agree to pay tribute, which is important because non-payment of the tribute then from that time onwards, all the way through to the Claudian invasion, can be used and is used as a trigger for the Romans saying, I'll come back if you don't pay the tribute. Two of the invasions, probably which Augustus planned himself, were based, I think, around the Britons stopping paying the Caesarian tribute. And they did, so the invasion didn't take place. But also hostages. So you're now having the elite's sons of the British nobility going to Rome 
as hostages, where they're finding out about the Roman Empire, they're learning about the pros and cons. So it's not all cons now, it's all pros as well. So now Britain is on the Roman map. And I think from this period until the Claudian invasion, the Romans start casing the joint. So they know when they come over in AD 43 where all the resources are, like the iron in the wheel in Kent, for example, and they switch the tap on immediately. So this is important. Caesar in 54 BC is important because it puts Britain on the Roman map. And having done that, he then decides the job's done. So this is a classic armed incursion, really. Let's call it an armed reconnaissance. The job's done, decides to go back to Gaul, has to go back in three waves of transports because of the number that were damaged in the bad weather, but gets back and now can truly write to the Senate and the people of Rome that I've done the job, I've done the amazing thing. I've been to Mordor and I've defeated the bad guys. I've done something nobody else has done. And I think that this is something which is amazing and astonishing to the Romans. And it's this more than anything else, I think, that puts Caesar on this curve, steepening, steepening, steepening curve to be this truly great figure of the ancient world. And Simon, what's also so interesting there is you mentioned these sons of British rulers going to Rome. Well, one potential figure who could have therefore done that could have been that famous resistance leader who we see much later, Caratacus or Caratacus, who we know was the son of a British ruler. So I wanted to get that in there because that is really interesting in itself. Just before we wrap up, I want to go back to the archaeology of the second invasion a bit longer because, Simon, recently there has been some archaeology discoveries which do seem to shed more light, more information on Caesar's second, more successful expedition to Britain. Tristan, it's a brilliant point. So let's imagine that we know that the Romans came to Kent three times. We know the Caesar one, Caesar two, first half, second half, an extra time with Claudius. We know that when the Romans are marching in enemy territory at the end of every day's marching, they don't just sit down, put the tent up and make their bread. They then spend three hours building a marching camp, which is a fort. It's got a ditch, it's got a bank, a palisade on the bank, sometimes double, triple ditches. And then the inside is laid out exactly like a physical long-term permanent Roman fort. So this is a massive engineering exercise, okay? Remember in the legions, not only do you have the 1800 of the 6,000 as the specialists, but also every Roman legionary by this time, who are now known as Marius's mules, is a trained engineer. And we know from their campaigns, for example, in Britain, in Scotland and in Wales, that you can use these marching camps in the archaeological data as dot to dots to track each campaign. But of the three campaigns in Kent, first half, second half, extra time. We've never found any. It's really, really bizarre. They're there, but we haven't found any until 2017, when hey presto, one gets located. And this first one, it's the only one still, but the first one is located. It's on the Isle of Thanet, which today's part of the mainland, but in the Roman period was the other side of the Wantsom Channel. Let's break that down. The Wantsom Channel was the waterway, full flowing waterway, half a mile wide, which ran from the East Kent coast around Sandwich all the way through to the North Kent coast. It's vital because it allowed the Romans to bypass the Goodwin Sands, which were very dangerous to sail into the Thames estuary. And it was like a sort of a motorway in the Roman period, you know, ships going backwards and forwards all the time. So this marching camp's on the wrong side of the Wantsom Channel. Now, why is that? Well, I think this marching camp is associated with the 54 BC campaign because of the archaeology that's been found, which, by the way, includes a pillum head. 
in the bottom of one of the ditches. And I think actually this is part of Caesar's learning experience from 55 BC, because I think rather than it being a basic straightforward marching camp, I think it's Caesar's main logistics base because it's protected and defended from the marauding Britons on the mainland, because if you have the Wonsum Channel, it's quite easy to clear Thanet of any opposition. And once it's cleared, we've got no evidence at all, by the way, that there was any sort of anything like a navy amongst the late Iron Age Britons, which is unusual. Britain is an island, but there's no evidence of it at all. And we do know, by the way, the, the Roman writers talk frequently about the Northwestern Gauls being expert maritime operators and navigators, but there is no mention at all of maritime operations by the native Britons. So for whatever reason, it doesn't seem to have been present in any great form. So once the Romans had cleared the Isle of Thanet of any opposition, they could then use it as a logistics base in the middle of which they then build this massive logistics marching camp. And I think that's where the Romans would have stored all the grain, etc., and their weaponry and their horses and the timber to repair the ships, which they knew they'd need to support this operation. So in actual fact, that's the first piece of hard evidence we've got to really show that this is really where Caesar landed. That's really interesting in itself and keeping on the archaeology a bit longer to one other site that I think we need to mention. Simon, tell us a bit about Big Bree Hillfort and also the work of your fellow Roman historian, Roman Kent amigo, Dr. Steve Willis, because Big Bree, this also seems to be might have a quite a significant link to this expedition too. So again, fantastic point. So what we'll do, let's go back a little bit to the beginning of the 54 BC campaign. So the Romans have landed and they have a number of sort of military engagements. There's no set piece battle, but a number of military engagements. And it looks like one of the places where the Britons may have chosen to try and make a stand was in the fort at Bigbury, so Nine H Hill Fort, overlooking modern Canterbury, which was the Oppida, so the tribal centre of the local Kantiaki. So this is where the hill forts, where the local Kantiaki there would logically choose to defend. They probably had no experience at this point of the Romans besieging anywhere, because of course the Romans wouldn't have found besieging a hill fort particularly difficult. They're very used to sort of any siege operations, given this is a Mediterranean army anyway. And also they have fought the Gauls now by this time for three years, and they know all about the Gallic sort of physical defences in Gaul. And so you can imagine the hill forts with its double, triple ditches. You can imagine its palisades on the earthen banks. You can imagine its defended gateways, etc. Well, the Romans know exactly how to invest places like this. What they do is they would use a barrage of slingshot, usually, to keep the heads of the defenders down on the parapets. Because remember, a sling, lead slingshot, is like a low-velocity revolver bullet. So even if it doesn't penetrate your armour, it's going to break an arm or it's going to concuss you. And we know from the Mediterranean world, for example, at places like the walls of Pompeii, that this was the preferred method of the Romans, keeping the heads down of the defenders. And then they would target a given area in the defences and then storm it. And in this case, it seems as though you have the 7th Legion building a ramp, think of Masada and Titus's investment of Masada in modern Israel. They built a ramp to enable the 7th Legions formed in testudo tortoise formation, sort of fully covered with the scutum shields, with a bombardment on the parapets either side, the slingshots are smacking in, the ballista bolts and the Scorpio bolts are flying over, etc. There are Brits falling down all over the place, and the Roman testudos 
on the ramp, smashes over the parapets, and then the Britons give up the ghost straight away. <laughs> so as soon as the Romans are in, the Britons know what's going to happen. So they left one of their gateways undefended so they can escape. So it looks as though, to my mind, it's almost a half-hearted defence, actually, maybe even in using modern military terms, sort of a delaying action, because they don't die to the last man, as they would have done in Masada. They actually try and flee to fight another day, but ultimately the Romans are successful. So you have two locations there if you're interested in Roman archaeology in modern Kent. There are two locations there where you can physically go on the Isle of Thanet. This is near Pegwell Bay for the, the marching camp on the far side of the Wonsum Channel or Bigbury Hill Fort above Canterbury. Two physical locations you can go and stand today in the reasonable knowledge that Julius Caesar, this, to my mind, greatest of the Romans, himself physically stood. Well, there you go, Simon. That's a wonderful way to wrap it all up. You've already mentioned the significance. Now Britain is well and truly on the Roman map, paving the way for the future Claudian invasion. One all at this time. <laughs> Finally, I must ask about your book all about this. Simon, you've done a book on these Roman invasions of Britain, which is called? I've got a book coming out at the end of July through The Great Pen of Sword, part of their very well-received and known series, Roman Conquests. This is Roman Conquests Britain. I've been very fortunate they've asked me to write the story of the various Roman campaigns of conquest of Britain, which actually is a story of Roman Britain because, of course, the Romans never fully conquered the whole of Britain because they never conquered the region today called Scotland. But there's a whole chapter on pre-Roman, late Iron Age Britain, goes into great detail about the nature of this part of northwestern Europe at the time and there's another chapter on the Caesarean invasions and another chapter on the Claudian invasions so that's out at the end of July. Brilliant Simon thanks so much for coming on the podcast at such short notice it's been a joy. Fantastic thank you for having me I love talking to you guys. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.